0: Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about what a free and fair future could look like. If you're like me, you've been doing something you never thought you'd be doing, homeschooling a kid. Schools are all shut down because of the pandemic, and so for the past two months, you've been juggling your job and trying to keep your kids focused on the remote schoolwork. But I've been wondering if there will be any long-term effects from this moment. It's, It's what amounts to a grand national experiment in homeschooling. Figured I should talk to an expert. I'm joined by Carrie McDonald, who is a fellow and scholar of education policy at a number of think tanks, including the Foundation for Economic Education and the Cato Institute. And she's the author of Unschooled Raising Curious, Well Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classroom, which was published last year by Chicago Review Press. Welcome to the show, Carrie.
1: That's great to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: What is unschooling. I mean, schooling sounds like a, it has good connotations. It sounds like a good thing. So unschooling might sound some of our listeners like a bad thing. What is it?
1: So in my book, I define unschooling really as disentangling education from schooling and seeing schooling as one method to be educated, certainly the most dominant method today, but really thinking about learning and schooling as separate and ways that we can cultivate education beyond schooling, particularly focused on self-directed education, really thinking about children's unique interests and gifts and talents and helping to facilitate that uh, through community resources, digital resources, which of course we're all accessing now, uh, and other ways of fostering that curiosity and creativity in young children that we see all the time and that so often can be eroded as children go through a schooling system that very often is focused on conformity and compliance. And so one of the things particularly as a result of the pandemic, uh, now that so many young people are at home, uh, you know, more than 50 million students in the U.S., over 1 billion students around the world at home, uh, learning at home during the pandemic, uh, one of the things that I try to say is to the extent that families can disconnect from their local school and really try to tap into uh, some of these incredible learning resources we have available to us, really reconnect with their children and discover their children's interests and gifts, and then uh, use those as a way to really facilitate that child's learning and and maybe rekindle some of that natural curiosity and drive for discovery uh, that, again, young children naturally exude.
0: 50, did you say 50 million students or 50 million um, households? What was the statistic there?
1: 50 million students in the U.S. Wow. Uh, and over 1 billion students around the world are at home, uh, learning at home, into varying degrees of connection to their local district, of course, or their local private school. Of course, some schools have been able to ramp up virtual learning more successfully than others. Uh, and in some cases, though, I think families are finding that they have a lot more time, a lot more freedom and flexibility, even if they are tied to a local school curriculum. Um, there's a lot of other time in the day, maybe their child is getting through that curriculum in a couple of hours, uh, because there aren't those distractions that we would typically find in a conventional classroom, which leaves a lot of time for these other kinds of opportunities for discovery. And I have a recent article up at the Cato Institute about all of these free online learning resources that are sprouting during the pandemic um, that really make online learning uh, and discovery so much more of a possibility for so many families. I mean, you see, um, you know, world famous authors and illustrators offering classes and workshops free live streaming during the pandemic. You have 2,500 museums around the world offering free virtual tours of their Museums, as well as incredible online content that they're generating uh, daily, to really help families uh, to discover some new experiences and ideas. So there's just so much to tap into right now. To the extent that families can uh, disconnect from these curriculum directives and really explore learning without schooling,
0: is that homeschooling? What are the differences between what, say, you know, your school district sends you a curriculum you're supposed to walk through with your students? Um, how how does that differ from what we kind of expect from a homeschooling family would do in ordinary times uh h- how similar is that i mean because i i could see an argument that it's still not full homeschooling because it's not self-directed you're still following a curriculum um how how do you weigh those the 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 similarities and differences between what uh we're currently doing because of covid-19 and what homeschooling typically looks like
1: Right. I think you're right that what most families are encountering now is school at home, um, virtual school at home, or some other variation of that, that this is nothing like authentic homeschoolers. Um, I'm a homeschooling mother of four children in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and can tell you that what we're experiencing now is nothing like our typical days, just like everyone else. We are Isolated from our communities right now and disconnected from the people, places and things of our community that really enlivens our typical homeschooling experience. Um, And so this is definitely not anything like authentic homeschooling when young people would be out in their community, taking classes, meeting in groups, gathering with friends, uh, engaging with mentors participating in apprenticeship programs and those kinds of things, that's just not happening right now for any of us. But I think it's interesting that given the limitations that are on all of us right now, um, I find it surprising that Ed Choice just came out with a survey of families coping with the pandemic and they asked all kinds of questions about, you know, what are, how are families dealing with this current environment? They found that more than half of the respondents have a more favorable view of homeschooling as a result of this pandemic homeschooling that we're encountering, which I find really intriguing because if families are um, finding this not to be that unpleasant, then just imagine the real thing when they can actually be out in their communities. So that's a good sign. And, and in some ways, um, speaks to you know what i think a lot of families have maybe been considering for a while maybe they have felt like the conventional schooling environment for their child has not been ideal but they haven't been certain about other alternatives or maybe they've considered homeschooling but have lacked that catalyst that inertia to really take the leap into trying something else and now that we are all forced to do something different It might be just what these families need to see that there are alternatives to school. And maybe some of these families are finding, you know, their child is happier because they're not being bullied in school. Maybe they're calmer because they're able to focus on content that's really meaningful to them. Maybe their love of reading is um, reemerging because they're reading things that interest them and that they're passionate about. And so for some families, this could be eye opening. And even if families um, may not choose homeschooling post-pandemic, although I would be surprised that we don't see an uptick in the numbers of families choosing homeschooling, I think it will open their eyes to all kinds of schooling alternatives, like virtual schooling options. Now that they realize that you know online learning maybe isn't so bad, maybe their child is actually actually thriving in that uh, in that format. Maybe they'll look into virtual schooling or hybrid homeschooling models that already were sprouting prior to the pandemic. And I think we'll see more of these hybrid homeschool and micro school models emerging after this is over.
0: To be clear, when you talk about these hybrid models, is is this the kind of situation where um, you've decided to homeschool or in this current moment being forced to essentially homeschool um, and you feel competent to help lead your kid through, you know, basic literacy, learning how to how to read how to you know learn their letters, do basic math, but there's some classes you just don't feel capable, or you'd rather have someone else do the instruction for. And so you dial into a, a remote service for higher level science classes, or, you know, trigonometry or, or whatever. Is that what you mean by a hybrid model? What does that look like?
1: Well, that could be part of it. I mean, homeschoolers, even more traditional homeschoolers, you know, particularly uh, in this digital age are often taking online classes, advanced placement classes online and those sorts of things. When I talk about hybrid homeschool models, though, that have really been um, becoming more popular, say over the last five to 10 years, it's really a combination of some at home learning and then having children be present at A building or a learning center or some other kind of environment. And there's both private and public models of this. So for example, in California, uh, there is the Da Vinci uh, charter school network in the Los Angeles area where parents are homeschoolers, but their children go two days a week to this kind of public charter school building and learn this project based approach to learning with with teachers and and a, and a charter school curriculum. Uh, so it's free to the consumer in that it is a public charter school, but the rest of the time the parents are homeschooling or the children are taking classes elsewhere in the community, um, facilitated by the families. And so that is one model. You also see more private charter hybrid homeschool models where, again, young people may be at a learning center a couple of days a week, but they're registered as homeschoolers. And in some cases, for example, my children attend a self-directed learning center here in the city a couple of days a week, but you could attend up to five days a week if you wanted to, and you're still registered as a homeschooler. What this does, again, is enable families to tap into the freedom and flexibility of homeschooling and, uh, in this case, of self-directed education Um, but still acknowledge that some families have two parents who work or have single parent families. It's interesting to note, too, that obviously there's the public charter schools that are free to the consumer, free to the user. But even these private models tend to be a fraction of the cost of available private options, typically one quarter to a third the cost of other types of private schools in that area.
0: I imagine not all states are quite so progressive as Massachusetts and California in that regard. Um, Is that true? And and would you expect there to be some variance between states that have, you know, kind of have a baseline openness towards homeschooling and what that means for the future um, after this kind of mass enforced homeschooling because of the pandemic?
1: Well, I would just say that in terms of virtual uh, charter schools and charter schools in general, um, you know, here in Massachusetts, we're not at all progressive in that in that area. And you find many other uh, states to have much more education, experimentation and innovation. For example, Arizona, which leads the country in education choice mechanisms and all kinds of different education options, um, you know, has some really incredible uh, micro schools that are popping up often using their virtual charter school programs. There's a ne- fast growing network, for example, of in-home micro schools that operate sort of on this, again, homeschooling model called the Prenda School Network in Arizona um, that now has you know, over 600 students and just started about a year and a half ago. So they're doing really well. And again, it's that flexibility of state policy around uh, encouraging different models of K to 12 learning. So Um, I think that 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 will continue, and I think we will see uh, states manage this differently. For the states that already have a reputation for embracing education choice, this will be a great time for families because I think parents will, uh, in particular, be demanding more choice. They'll start to see that there are these different ways of learning, in some cases learning outside of a conventional classroom or maybe some combination of virtual learning and in-home learning or virtual learning, in-home learning, and community-based learning. Uh, and I think that, that the more that parents demand that, the more that entrepreneurs will respond. And, of course, that's easier to do when you have um, a culture in particular states that encourage that kind of innovation and that have some of these education choice mechanisms, particularly education savings account programs that, again, Arizona leads the way in and, uh, and charter schools and those kinds of things.
0: Now, I live in New Jersey and right across the river from Philadelphia, and it, early on during the school shutdowns, um, there were uh, – some schools were attempting to do remote learning, um, but those – the the school district actually shut those schools down for a period of weeks at least um, and did so because they were concerned that not all students would have access to remote instruction. They didn't have laptops or reliable internet at home or or whatnot. Um, so there was a certain uh, beggar thy neighbor approach, which was if, if everyone can't be guaranteed to have it, then no one is going to have remote instruction. So uh, they really had a long break um, in Philadelphia's uh, school system. Uh, because of that, uh, has that been co- uh, a common problem across the country or is the, have we seen other school districts struggle with that equity access problem in this shift to remote instruction?
1: That's right. Yes. In Seattle and in Illinois, uh, other districts had that same issue where uh, they were concerned about equity in terms of accessing the virtual curriculum Um even though in many cases, internet service providers were offering their services for free, internet for free for families that didn't have it, there were still connectivity issues. Um, Many districts were handing out Chromebooks to students who didn't have access to laptops or computers at home. But still there was concern that because everyone wouldn't have equitable access to a curriculum, uh, we can't make this curriculum mandatory. And so what you found in some of these districts is that any materials that were being sent home uh, were considered for enrichment purposes only, and they were considered optional. Um, so again, I look at that as an opportunity for families to really uh, disconnect from that those local school directives and curriculum requirements and really start to tap into some of these incredible free online uh, resources that, again, are, are sprouting every day. Uh, and really then Realize how children can learn without this kind of conventional schooling approach when they are facilitate, when that is facilitated and when they have access to these other resources.
0: Mm-hmm. Now uh, you mentioned uh, education savings accounts and even when times are good, even when we're not in the middle of a pandemic and uh, you know, a possible economic recession, um, even when times are good, there are concerns about homeschooling, um, uh, having access issues just because it's, you know, it, 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 doesn't always require a per a parent to stay home full time, but it does require, it's hard to, for, you know, two parents to work traditional nine to five jobs and homeschool a kid at the same time. So there's a certain kind of, uh, socioeconomic or financial privilege that makes it easier for uh, middle-class and upper-class families to homeschool to have the financial resources necessary. Um, to, in a sense, you know, double pay, they're paying both their you know, property taxes for the local public school and for the curriculum, uh, for their homeschooling curriculum. So w- even in the best of times, there is an equity gap, uh, just because of uh, different levels of income, when it comes to homeschooling, uh, that's been heightened, I, I suspect, because of uh, the current circumstances, what kinds of policies and, and you mentioned Arizona's uh, education savings accounts, you um, Uh, I imagine school vouchers can play a part here. But what what kind of policies would you favor to uh, mitigate that financial equity gap?
1: Right. I'll just start by giving a bit of a snapshot of the U.S. homeschool population, um, pandemic notwithstanding. (laughs) So what is the homeschool population uh, when it's not 50 million of us? Um, There's about 2 million uh, U.S. homeschoolers, about three and a half percent of the overall K-12 school age population are homeschooled. That's just a bit under the number of uh, U.S. public charter school students as well. And uh, you're finding that that population is increasingly diverse, demographically diverse and ideologically diverse uh, different approaches to education and so on, so that that you do find that home the current homeschooling population really is much more reflective of the U.S. population as a whole, uh, and socioeconomic status would be a key piece of that. Now, I think you're right that more families might take advantage of homeschooling if they had access to some of these education choice mechanisms. And education savings accounts are particularly beneficial for homeschoolers because they do what I'm suggesting here in in separating education from schooling. So whereas vouchers are enabling parents to enroll in a private or in some cases a public school um, and move their tax dollars from one school to another school Education savings accounts really unbundle education and allow families to use a portion of that tax revenue to um, fund tutoring or books and supplies or classes, um, uh, those kinds of things. So other 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 um, approaches to education that wouldn't just involve schooling, although tuition could be a part of that, particularly if it's these learning centers or some of these hybrid models. Um, that would make sense for some of these ESA accounts. Tax credit scholarships are also uh, another way that um, families can access some of these funds uh, outside of schooling and be able to use those toward approved educational expenses. Um, There's, Understandably, uh, there's controversy even within the homeschooling population around um, education choice mechanisms. Many homeschooling families worry about increased scrutiny or regulation if families were taking advantage of these education choice mechanisms. And of course, the mechan- these mechanisms should always be voluntary. Uh, and that, uh, you know, I-, I-, I can sympathize with homeschoolers suggesting that opening up these um, options to homeschooling families could open up the larger homeschool population to regulation. I think that's a justifiable concern. But I think that um, to expand these kinds of education options to more families, we can be vigilant about making sure that families who don't tap into these education choice mechanisms uh, don't get increased scrutiny or regulation. And the families that do choose to access some of these education choice mechanisms may be required to have some additional regulation or oversight because that is some public money. So, you know, I think there is that that is so unsettled, even within the homeschooling population, but to expand access to uh, the freedom and flexibility inherent in homeschooling, uh, or other types of alternatives to school, it's worth advocating for these school choice mechanisms.
0: There are also critics of homeschooling who are skeptical of the effects on public schools, either of removing you know, some portion of taxpayer dollars through vouchers or of removing high-performing students from public school districts. What's your kind of elevator pitch to someone who's skeptical of homeschooling uh, for for these kinds of reasons? Why would you encourage them to have a more open mind towards, towards homeschooling?
1: Well, in in terms of Critics who say, you know, by removing your children from the public school, whether that's for homeschooling or private school or any other kind of education option, that, and they say, well, that weakens the public school and you shouldn't do that. I would say that I don't think uh, a family should ever have to sacrifice their child's well being and education for the sake of another child's well being and education. I think that that's uh, a parent's responsibility, a family's responsibility to look after the well-being of their own children. So that would be, you know, my response to that. Um, And I and I think again, you know, we have to look at compulsory schooling more broadly, that if families are only attending an assigned district school because they are mandated to do so by law under a legal threat of force and otherwise would flee, you know, what does that say about the quality um, of that education in that local district?
0: it seems unfair to expect uh families who currently homeschool um as, as if that what 3 3 and change percent of the schooling population they bear the onus for fixing schooling for the other 90 plus percent i mean right, like you have a broken system and the, the people trying to flee the system are are the ones who get scapegoated <laughs> for for the broader systemic problems it, it seems unfair <laughs>
1: Right. Well, and I don't think it's just homeschoolers, right? I mean, you have just under 10% of the U.S. school age population in private schools. And then you have, um, you know, roughly 6% in charter public charter schools. And that's all often the same critique of charter schools uh, is that it's funneling students away. But again, it, it has to make you look a little bit closer at um, mandatory district school assignments. And the fact, again, Ed Choice coming out last fall with Uh, discovery that while 80 percent or over 80 percent of young people attend um, an assigned district school, uh, fewer than 30 percent of their parents prefer them there. So there's this enormous choice gap uh, in American education.
0: Yeah. now, you've been an advocate for alternative education for quite some time. You've mentioned you homeschool your, your own children. Where did you first encounter that approach to education? Is that something you've always kind of possessed as a as a thinker, as an adult? What convinced you personally of the need for alternatives?
1: Yeah, you know, I went to uh, K-12 public schools, uh, never knew a homeschooler, never knew anything about homeschooling or alternative education and broadly. When I went to college, I was an economics major. and became increasingly interested in uh, education from the lens of economics, and particularly in particular, the choices that parents made or could not make regarding education, given the sort of government monopoly system of mass schooling. And so I began to take more education classes as an undergraduate. One of these classes, I had a chance to do a research project, independent research project, And I discovered that a classmate of mine had a family member who lived nearby who was homeschooling. And this was in the late 90s. Homeschooling had just become legally recognized in all 50 states a few years prior uh, by the mid-1990s. 1999 was the first year that the U.S. Department of Education tracked homeschooling numbers and counted about 850,000 homeschoolers at the time. Uh, And I remember, you know, shadowing this homeschooling family for that semester and being completely enchanted by what I saw, just learning outside of schooling, uh, authentic socialization in the community, interacting with people and places uh, in the community. And it was really in stark contrast to that same semester I was doing a student teaching practicum in a local public elementary school. And seeing that contrast, even though I had been through K-12 to schooling, I had never seen sort of outside learning possibilities and uh, Uh, conventional schooling in that same um, frame of time. And that was just really eye-opening to me. So then I went to graduate school in education policy at Harvard and became more interested in alternatives to school and homeschooling and unschooling and education choice more broadly.
0: Uh, So, you know, master's degree in education policy from Harvard. Uh, At the time, uh, like you said, this is still a relatively... Uh, relatively young movement in terms of its uh, legal access in, in quite, a, quite a big chunk of the United States. Uh, how open were education policy scholars to these alternatives while you were in graduate school? I mean, was there a lot of resistance at the time? Uh, what did you encounter?
1: Right. Well, at the time uh, that I was at Harvard, which was right around the turn of the millennium, they, uh, if you were interested at all, really, in alternative education, charter schools were what you focused on, um, they were you know, sort of coming on the scene in uh, having some more broad impact. And so that's where I, I really focused a lot of my coursework and and some of my internships was in the charter school movement, education choice school choice area. Um, but as part of that, I always was thinking about homeschooling and unschooling and alternatives to school as part of that broader landscape of educational freedom for families. And it was about a decade later when I, you know, became a mom and was looking at education choices for my own children that I realized that, you know, homeschooling, particularly where we are here in the city, um, is really an expansive opportunity. I mean, I felt like if I were to send my kids to school, their learning would contract. They would end up in the same um, classroom and the same with the same age segregated group of peers, the same static handful of teachers, the same standardized curriculum. Uh, And instead I really wanted them learning uh, throughout the community, taking classes um, through local museums and libraries and organizations that offer these incredible homeschooling programs um, at affordable costs and uh, interacting with mentors and meeting with tutors or topics that are, you know, interesting to them. And so I felt like I wanted to make sure, my husband and I both felt that we wanted to make sure to give our children that freedom to learn outside of a conventional classroom.
0: Now, since you're a Harvard alum, I I thought I'd ask you about an article in uh, the Harvard Magazine, which is one of those, like, university alum PR fundraising outlets um, that went uh, uh, viral in kind of education policy circles recently. It was titled The Risks of Homeschooling. that detailed the research of a Harvard Law professor named uh, Elizabeth Bartolet, um, and she claimed that there should be a presumptive ban on homeschooling because it, among other things, fomented child abuse and undermined the creation of good citizens. Uh, what was your reaction to that piece and to Bartlett's kind of stance more broadly?
1: Well, like many people, I was shocked by the Harvard Magazine piece. It's in the May-June issue of, of the Harvard Magazine, the Alumni Magazine, uh, and and really focuses on Elizabeth Bartholet's 80-page Arizona Law Review article that she recently published that goes into more detail about her case for a presumptive ban on homeschooling. Um, I wrote a letter to the editor of Harvard Magazine uh, expressing my disbelief at the one-sided portrayal of homeschooling that's really not at all characteristic of the U.S. homeschooling population today. And I republished that at fee.org. And so really, there's so many pieces to the Law Review article and the Harvard Magazine article that create a caricature of American homeschooling. Uh, Everything from indicating that it twice in the Arizona Law Review article, and then again in the Harvard Magazine article, indicating that up to 90% of homeschoolers are driven by conservative Christian beliefs, when that's just not at all true. I mean, even federal data, uh, the most recent federal data from the U.S. Department of Education, for example, shows that uh, the top motivator for today's homeschooling families, the Uh, motivator that they indicate most often as their reason for choosing homeschooling is concern about the environment of other schools, including safety, drugs, and negative peer pressure. Um, The the number of families indicating that homeschooling for religious reasons was their top motivator was like 16% of the overall homeschool uh, respondents. So it's just not backed up by data. Uh, that, that most of these homeschoolers are driven by conservative Christian beliefs. Of course, I would also say to that, you know, even if they were, why would that matter? Why would that be a reason for a presumptive ban? And one of the things that Elizabeth Bartholet, you know, makes the, the case for in, in her law review article and in Harvard magazine is, well, young, you know, young people need to go to public schools so that they can um, learn to be tolerant of other people's viewpoints And yet he or she is being very intolerant toward um, these other viewpoints. So there is so much there. And then I think uh, it doesn't get into it so much in the Harvard Magazine article, but in the Arizona Law Review article, you can tell uh, toward the end that this is really an effort to sort of shift the interpretation of the U.S. Constitution that has historically upheld the liberty interest of parents to raise and educate their children as they choose. And Elizabeth Barthollet, in her law review article, says that the Constitution cons- Constitution is outdated and inadequate. And she urges um, a reinterpretation of the Constitution that moves from our historic model of negative rights of individuals being protected from state intervention to positive rights where the state grants rights and takes a much more interventionist role in individual lives, and in particular, in the lives of families and children. So I think there's so much more uh, to this particular uh, policy recommendation than just homeschooling.
0: Historically, I mean, there's a a whole backstory of attempts to use the public educational system to to suppress uh, ideological and political dissent and to create a certain vision of the American of the american citizen of the american family of the american community um you know the efforts so once upon a time this meant preventing uh the concern was not so much you know i don't know evangelicals or protestants uh, like it is now uh in terms of opposition homeschooling today it was concerns about uh catholic parochial schools right that we need to keep to be a good american means to um not be Catholic, so if we force Catholic parochial schools to close, we force uh, Catholic families to send their kids to protestant run public schools to use the Protestant version of the bible well that 's how we can create good American citizenship. so I find that whole appeal to what does it mean to be a good citizen? That we need to use schools to promote citizenship really quite insidious and in drawing on a, a long history um, of of kind of questionable questionable use of public schools. Uh, to suppress people who don't quite fit in, you know, uh, uh, cultural, religious uh, minorities. Um, So I I found that that part of it was disconcerting when I looked over her Arizona Review article. But I suppose she's correct that public schools can be a tool to create a certain kind of citizenship. But whether or not it's a citizenship that we should um, admire, whether that's a project we should be part of is another question.
1: Well, although I I would argue that public schools may not be doing a great job of that. I mean, the University of Pennsylvania uh, came out with a study in 2017, uh, surveying adults and various civics um, content, and they found that 37% of Americans could not name one right protected by the First Amendment of the Constitution. They couldn't name one. Uh, you know, so it's our and then we look at our recent NAEP scores, uh, the National Assessment for Educational Progress, often called the nation's report card. Um, you know, two thirds of young people in fourth and eighth grade uh, can, are not proficient readers and their civics is even worse. Uh, very few students are are uh, are excelling in physics or proficient in any kind of um, understanding of, of government and, and civic life. So you know, I would take issue with the idea that somehow public schools are where young people will learn these skills, um, when in fact, a lot of research on homeschoolers find that homeschoolers are the ones who are often uh, more tolerant and have more respect for divergent viewpoints.
0: Right. Yeah, it's the call for, uh, to encourage tolerance being used to actually discourage tolerance. I mean, that that's the, that's kind of the part of the perversity of the argument. Um, I, that, that's So one thing that struck me as I was reading uh, Bartholet's uh, uh, article was her appeal, both in Harvard Magazine and in her uh, Arizona Law Review piece, um, was the appeal to Tara Westover's book, which is very well written, um, read it myself, uh, uh, Educated. And so what was striking to me was uh, the similarity – I mean, it's a coincidence, I suppose, but the similarity between the book titled Educated and your book titled Unschooled. Um, so, you know, there's a, a certain uh, similarity in, in language there. Um, what was your take reading Westover's book? It's, it's gotten a lot of, you know, it has a large readership because it was a, you know, a bestseller. Um, and why do you think uh, Bartlett's taking very different lessons from that story than I think a lot of homeschool, homeschooling advocates do?
1: Well, Westover's book is phenomenal. It's been on the New York Times bestseller list now for 115 weeks. It continues to be um, a popular book. And, and it's just beautifully written, just a, a compelling memoir, really, of her experience. Um, you know, she her story really it lives on the margins, um, you know, certainly of homeschooling, but even within her own religious community and their own kind of ideal ideology, uh, very much on the margins. And yet, you know, here is this woman who uh, ends up being incredibly successful, goes on to college, goes on to get a doctorate from Cambridge University, writes this bestselling book. Two of her siblings also have doctorates. Um, you know, clearly her childhood was um, very, very challenging, many cases abusive. Uh, and it is odd, I think, to point out this one anecdote that's so clearly on the margins uh, as you know, Barthollet's kind of rallying cry for why we need to have a presumptive ban on homeschooling, um, sort of having the exception drive the rule when, of course, uh, you know, most families who choose homeschooling are trying to um, ensure their child's well-being. In many cases, families are removing their children from school um, because of abuse in that school, whether it's rampant bullying that's occurring or tragically um, abuse by school teachers or administrators. I mean, headlines abound of um, public school teachers or school officials who are being arrested or convicted for Uh, physically abusing children in school. And then a 2004 US Department of Education study found that one in 10 public school students would be sexually abused by a public school educator by the time they graduated from high school. Um, So this again, this idea that public schools are somehow safer and more nurturing. uh, And that's why we need to ban homeschooling is simply untrue. And we need to re- make sure we're retaining that exit ramp uh, in homeschooling for families that are removing their children from these abusive school environments.
0: There is a, I suppose it's a, a habit of thought. It, it, it sometimes feels like uh, critics of homeschooling and advocates for uh, mandatory public schooling. Um, there's a mindset that, uh Rather than schools existing to serve children and families, uh, that families and children exist to serve the interests of the school. Therefore, you can't take children out of the school system because it might hurt the school system's finances or their performance. Um, But that seems to have the order of operations backwards. Um, Have you encountered that mindset uh, anywhere else?
1: Well, I mean, I think it it is peculiar that even uh, in the Harvard Magazine article, uh, Barthollet explains that she's concerned about, quote, authoritarian control of children by their parents. And yet you could argue that there is um, a lot of authoritarian control of children through um, government school systems as well, not to mention how authoritarian it is to um, call for a presumptive ban. On homeschooling. Uh, you know, so, so I think that, that that's another, uh, contradiction in Barthollet's piece. And there was just a, a wonderful rebuttal, um, by Patrick Wolf and Angela Watson and Matthew Lee of Barthollet's Arizona Law Review piece that was published, um, in Education Next, really, uh, taking apart the argument and, and pointing out so many of its flaws.
0: Mm, excellent. We'll have to put a link to that in the show notes, so uh, our listeners can can read uh, read both. If you want, you can read both Bartolette's piece and uh, the rebuttal. Um, before we go here, I thought I'd ask you. So, uh, uh, my family, like millions of other families across America, are are suddenly engaging in in remote schooling, homeschooling right now. Uh, you already mentioned a bunch of resources uh, that have uh, popped up for homeschooling families, you know, museums and websites and the like. Uh, we'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, do you have any other practical advice that you've learned after homeschooling for years that you can impart to those of us newly embarking in this adventure?
1: Well, this is a really stressful time for everybody. I think even, um, potentially even more stressful as the weeks go on and we, um, get more and more stir crazy and more and more, you know, ready for a change. I think it's really difficult. Um, to the extent, again, that families can disconnect from schooling uh, and really enjoy time with their children, read books together or watch a documentary together. There's many free documentaries that are now being streamed. Um, And linger over breakfast, go for a walk outside together. You know, those are the things that I think families will cherish. They won't, um, you know, I think the important message I like to, to say is instead of focusing on learning loss during the pandemic, which are a lot of headlines are, you know, making it sound like this is an educational calamity. And there'll be the Washington Post saying a whole generation of young people will be set back because of this time away from school. I disagree. I think Uh, We should focus instead on what is gained during this time, not only in terms of learning and using a lot of these incredible online resources, but in terms of reconnecting as a family, um, you know, remembering that this is a historic moment for all of us, but in particular for our children, this will really define their childhoods and shape their future for decades to come. And so if we can acknowledge that there's so much learning and so much to experience during this time at home Um, and time of social distancing, uh, then I think that it'll take the pressure off and make it a much more fulfilling experience for families all over.
0: To go out to like 10,000 feet, what do you think the effects of this kind of grand national experiment will be for the future of homeschooling?
1: Well, I think we're really positioned for a dramatic education transformation. I think of um, Terry Moe's book, the Politics of institution, Institutional Reform, Terry Mose out of uh, Stanford writing about the impact of Hurricane Katrina on New Orleans back in 2005 and how that massive disruption to the city and in particular to the public school system led to New Orleans becoming an almost all public charter school system. Uh, And he argues that that really couldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the level of disruption caused by Hurricane Katrina that really broke down a lot of these sort of bureaucratic and institutional um, fetters that had prevented a lot of change or education experimentation in that city. So I think we'll see much more of that. Some of it will be by necessity, of course. I think we'll continue to see districts improving their virtual learning capacity uh, and delivery mechanisms, I think that even if schools are reopened this fall or, you know, whenever they reopen, there will still be uh, some children who may not be attending those schools. For example, if they perhaps live with elderly grandparents, uh, they may not be um, going back to school or there may be staggered attendance policies to allow for social distancing in schools. So I think we'll still see certainly at the K to 12 public school level, much more in terms of digital learning and these uh, virtual learning possibilities. I I think along those same lines, a lot of the stigma around virtual learning will go away just because we're all doing it now. You know, I mean, I think adults are getting more comfortable working from home and and being at home. uh, And that might also, you know, transfer over to their children as well. And there may be more of this openness to explore some of these virtual uh, schools, whether they're private schools or public schools. I think of one in particular is the Arizona State University Prep Digital, ASU Prep Digital, which uh, is a high school program uh, affiliated with Arizona State, all online that allows young people to take uh, a dipl- get a diploma, take classes high school classes heading towards a diploma, while also accumulating college credits. So they're graduating all online, graduating with a high school diploma affiliated with Arizona State, as well as getting college credits to either use at Arizona State or to transfer to any other college or university, which, of course, defrays the cost of college. Uh, This is free for students in Arizona. It is uh, low cost for out of state students. And I think families will start to look at more of these options and say, wow, you know, this is a, a great alternative, and my child seems to be thriving. Uh, let's look at these other uh, uh, these other possibilities. And I think other programs like the ASU Prep Digital will begin to sprout as well. I think also we might see um, a resurging interest in these micro schools, sort of smaller. Um, more personalized schools because of the social distancing requirements that will be in place in these larger uh, public schools. I think there may be more interest in that. Forest preschools or outdoor kindergarten programs might also (laughs) become uh, more popular as, again, families are looking for other ways to learn. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. And I think finally, I'll just end by saying that because There's a lot of speculation that virtual working, uh, working from home, will continue post-pandemic as employers and employees see benefits to that. Uh, I think that that might also open up some more flexibility for families to look at these other options, that if they're not required themselves as workers to go to a building all day long, uh, five days a week that they may be able to expand some of that freedom and flexibility to their children for their education as well.
0: Now, Arizona has come up a lot in our conversation. Uh, Why has Arizona seemingly led the way in terms of um, openness to homeschooling and educational alternatives, programs like uh, ASU Prep? Uh, Why have they been such a success story?
1: They have a real culture of valuing education choice. Their uh, legislative policies have focused around expanding charter schools and expanding school choice mechanisms. Florida is another state that leads the way in terms of education choice. And I think those are the, the states that we'll see uh, continuing to offer many of these experimental models. They're not afraid to invent new ways of learning and then realize that there's tremendous demand for that uh, from parents.
0: In the end, I honestly don't know whether more families will end up homeschooling because of COVID-19 or not, but I do hope the experience helps people realize that there are alternatives to the way we currently educate our children. There are parents who feel locked into failing school systems all across this country, and we should, as a society, push for options that can provide kids with a better, fairer, and more equitable education. Next episode, I'll be talking about COVID-19's effects on colleges and universities with contrarian economist Brian Kaplan. But until then, be well. This episode of Building Tomorrow was produced by Landry Ayers for Libertarianism.org. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, check out our online encyclopedia or subscribe to one of our Half Dozen Podcasts.